From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow here at Family Research Council, and I am sitting in for Tony today. It is my pleasure to be doing so. Here at the beginning of January, Congress is reconvening this week. But in addition to that, something I want to bring to your attention at the top of the program, all over the country, in not all 50 states, but many of the 50 states, Your state legislatures are convening as well. And you may not know that Family Research Council is part of a national network associated, connected with state organizations that work in the state capitals that do the exact same work, fighting for family, faith, and freedom. If you are not connected to the state organization where you live, you can find that organization by going to frc.org slash states. And you can click on the map there, find out where you live, find out the local state family policy council that is fighting for faith, family, and freedom in your state capital. And you can connect with them, and you should, to stay in touch with everything happening in your neighborhood, as well as what you do, keeping track of what's going on in Washington, D.C. Hope you will check that out, frc.org slash states, and be part of what's happening in your state capital in 2020. Today on the program, we've got a great lineup for you. Is the Biden administration making plans to place men who identify as women into women's prisons? A leaked draft rule suggests that could be happening. In addition, college swimming is the latest battleground for the debate over transgender sports. A pen swimmer is making waves and crushing his opposition. But he just lost a race, and that's kind of important, too, once you find out who he lost to. At the end of the program, Russia is lining up troops on the border of Ukraine, and you just heard about that in the CBN News update. How serious is it? Are we taking the situation seriously enough? Is there anything we can or should be doing? That's our conversation later in the program. But now, the debate over masks, vaccines, and lockdowns is not simply a debate over what should be, but we can't seem to agree on what is. Part of our conflict is a lack of agreement over what the facts are. One of the key questions is how many people are dying from COVID rather than with COVID. When CDC Director Rochelle Walensky was asked this question over the weekend, she said the data will be forthcoming. Why do we not know that already after two years? Even the Supreme Court seems to be struggling struggling to understand what the facts are. During oral arguments on Friday, Justice Sonia Sotomayor had this to say. We have over 100,000 children, which we've never had before, in, in serious condition, and uh, many on ventilators. Now, when asked about the figure that Justice Sotomayor referenced on Friday, here's what CDC Director Walensky had to say. The most important thing we can do for those children to keep them out of the hospital is to vaccinate them and to vaccinate their family members around them. Understood. But the number is not 100,000. It's roughly 3,500 in hospitals now. Yes. What are we to make of all of this? With me now to discuss it is U.S. Representative 
and Dr. Greg Murphy, who is an actively practicing physician and a member in good standing of the North Carolina Institute of Medicine. He represents the 3rd Congressional District of North Carolina and is a member of the House Education and Labor Committee and the GOP Doctors Caucus. Dr. Murphy, welcome back to the program. Good afternoon, Joseph. Good to see you. It's good to see you. Uh, first, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to the oral arguments. Do, do you have any thoughts to share about the Supreme Court's long conversation on Friday and what they may do? <clears throat> well, it's going to be interesting to see, Joseph. Um, I, I do think that this goes in the favor of saying that these mandates are unconstitutional. I've said that for several months, just simply on the basis of what they've done. They're trying to use a vehicle that is... Uh, is not correct. It's unconstitutional what they're guard. And Joseph, the crazy thing is, is they knew this beforehand. And even Biden admitted this. He says it's probably not constitutional, but we're going to go ahead and do with it anyway. And so this difference between, I think, this administration and other um, conservative administrations, we actually look at the law first and then see what we can do afterwards. They just do what they, they can and then hope it's uh, hope it's lawful. And oftentimes it's not. So I think they both get thrown out. Um, it'll be very interesting to see how it goes, what the split is. Well, to that point, uh, the Biden administration all but said, we know it's not legal, but we think the threat of it is going to help people get vaccinated anyway. Do you think that's true? Have they uh, won that bargain they made? Well, I think that was their intention. Joseph, I think they um, wanted to threaten and bully and shame people into uh, getting vaccinated. You know, I've been very clear from the front, uh, Joseph. I, I've read the science. I've read the literature with great skepticism because that's what we're taught to do as physicians. And I believe that these are safe and effective. Um, but unfortunately, number one, we're not going to vaccinate ourselves out of this problem. This virus is just not going to go away. And two, this is not how you get people vaccinated. You don't shame them. You don't bully them. Look at Japan, for example. They have 78 percent of their people vaccinated, and they did this through education. They did not do it through mandates. They did not do it through bullying or shaming. And this is actually how we affect change, yeah. not by trying to make people a second-class citizen because of a medical decision that they make. I think that's a really good point. This is just kind of human psychology 101. One of the worst ways to persuade somebody is to refuse to ask their questions and shame them for asking questions. But that does kind of psychologically seem to be that the approach uh, that the administration has taken in, in so many ways. Now, one issue that came up uh, over the weekend with uh, CDC Director Walensky <clears throat> was this difference between from COVID and with COVID. She was asked yeah. directly, um, what's the difference? How many have died from and with? And her response was essentially, we'll get that data, data to you later. We're essentially two years into this. You're a physician. I am not. Is that data hard to come up with? Or is there some reason that we don't have an answer to that question that's pretty direct? No, Joseph, it's not hard to come up with. Um, you know, at the beginning of this, the CMS, the way they qualified admissions diagnosis, um, was based upon COVID, whether somebody had COVID or not, and the hospital got certain payments for this. And, uh, you know, I look at our institution, and I'm still a practicing physician. I look at our institution. I was talking with our hospital president the other day, and I saw an alarming rate of positive tests that have come back really within the last week, you know, three or four weeks ago. Anytime anybody would come in the hospital or need a procedure done, they got a routine test, whether they were symptomatic or not. The positivity rate was 7%, you know, two, three, four weeks ago. It's now up, gotten up to 40%, 40%, the vast majority of which are asymptomatic. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing so many people who are carrying this very infectious variant, but not being symptomatic. So I think this data really is very, very easy to come from. 
You know, if you died from a heart attack and you were COVID positive, the COVID didn't call that. Or if you died from a ruptured gallbladder, COVID did not cause that. So what's your response professionally to this idea that the positivity rates were 7%, now they're 40%? Is that something we should be panicked about? No, I don't think we're pan- we'd be panicked about it. You know, what we're seeing, and I, I feel for my colleagues who are nurses and, and, and physicians and other hel- allied health staff who have been, you know, being just true ho- hero, uh, heroes, rather, over the last two years taking care of people. Our numbers are up. Our numbers are higher, actually, in our um, in our healthcare system uh, now than they were during Delta's peak. That said, the numbers in the hospital are higher. The people in the ICUs and the death rate is not higher. And that's the goal. That's the silver lining in all this. People are sick. There's no doubt about this. People are sick and in the hospital. But the people who are actually dying, fortunately, are not proportional to the individuals that are coming up. And as even uh, Walensky noted, 75% of the individuals who have passed away from COVID have not one, not two, not three, but four uh, comorbid conditions. These are obesity, hypertension, kidney disease, um, diabetes, uh, advanced age. And so um, these are factors. These are things we actually know now. So saying that we don't know who's died from it and died with it is nonsense. It's just that's data. that data is there. Then would that data um, create <clears throat> the term I think is called vaccine hesitancy? Is that why we don't get a straight answer to that question? Well, I think that's the result of this, uh, Joseph. You know, we've seen so many flip-flops from the CDC, the FDA, the Biden administration, and good Lord Fauci, um, that it really has undercut people's confidence in doctors and in vaccines. And again, you start bullying people, um, you're telling them what to do, they're going to get their spines up and not do that, which is just a very, very unfortunate thing. You know, I've said many times we've been building a plane while flying it. I mean, this is true. We've been learning an entirely new situation with a novel virus. The problem is people haven't been um, they haven't been honest about this. You know, Biden said he's going to come in. He's not going to crush jobs. He's going to crush the virus, which was just a flat out lie. I mean, this is what's turned out to be. This is a very it's going to decide what it's doing on its own. And the problem is Fauci's turned political. Walensky's turned political. You know, she was making um, school recommendation policies based upon what school board um, folks or not school board, rather uh, their lobbyists and their unions wanted to do. So this is what's destroyed Americans' confidence in these very august institutions or previously august institutions of the CDC and the FDA. And so, you know, I I understand why people are very hesitant um, to believe what's coming out of this administration and its subsequent agencies right now. I want to talk a bit more about the CDC response to this and play a clip from an interview that Director Walensky had. She was asked by NBC's Savannah Guthrie about the CDC's updated isolation guidance. Why is the guidance so confusing? And, and I just have to say, the American Medical Association said the new recommendations on quarantine and isolation from the CDC are not only confusing, but are risking further spread of the virus. How do you respond? Yeah, very important. Thank you for the opportunity to clarify. So um, for many months, years, we had isolation and quarantine guidance that said 10 days, and we are now standing on the shoulders of years of science. The guidance is changing. What do you make of the changes? Is it science? Is it politics? Is it a combination of both? It's a combination, Joseph. And if we're if she's standing on the on the shoulders of science and what we've learned from the virus, why couldn't she stand on the shoulders and tell us what the death rate from true COVID was? So again, it's the um, it's the particular uh, uh, politically motivated 
a selection of certain facts here and not otherwhere, other places. But, you know, look at what the CDC has said. They said if you're positive, um, five days later you can go back, but and you should not get a test. But if you do get a test and you are positive, then you need to isolate. So is that so confusing to people or what? Again, it undermines the American public's confidence in our medical institutions. One year ago, 53% of Americans said COVID was their top issue. That number is down to 37%. And 68% of Americans say the ec- say economics and inflation being a big part of that is now their top issue. Does that change in the public's priorities? Is that going to have an impact on how the White House continues to respond to COVID? Well, I, you know, Joseph, how this White House responds to anything is is blind, is uh, is puzzling to me. Um, I think they're tone deaf in so many institutions or so many rather issues that are affecting our country. Yes, COVID is here. It's still going to be here. And in my opinion, it's going to have to mutate to a form that becomes seasonal, that becomes really a um, somewhat of a smaller number of individuals that are, are bothersome, a nuisance uh, illness, if you will. But what people are seeing with inflation that is knocking on their doorstep when they're going to fill up their gas or trying to buy groceries, these are the granular things that bother everybody, everybody, every day. It's in their face every day, while COVID may not be. And so I think the things are, uh, you know, wearing low as far as the people's patience on the Biden administration with COVID. And now institutions, people rather, are learning or are getting more involved in understanding more that inflation and some of these other issues are really what we need to uh, be focusing on on an everyday basis. Representative Murphy, thank you so much for your time today. We are out of time. We'll talk to you soon. Great, Jeff. Coming up, we're going to talk about transgender men. Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The Center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, and the public square. The experts at the center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, marriage, and sexuality. To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org slash subscriptions. 
At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. It is the new year, but it is not too late to start your Bible reading plan with all of us here at FRC. If you have not yet signed up, go to frc.org slash Bible. Sign up there on the website and you can have the weekly and monthly and yearly Bible reading plan sent to you. Read along with all of us because your life does need to be built on God's word. In addition, with all of the deplatforming and censorship happening, if you want to make sure that you always get FRC's news releases sent directly to you on your phone, you can sign up for text re- text alerts Text the word STAND to 67742. That's text the word STAND to 67742. And there will never be anything standing between you and great information about what's happening around the country and in Washington, D.C. The next story we're going to cover, a draft executive order that was obtained by the Federalist directs the U.S. Attorney General to, quote, begin the process of identifying any necessary changes to the Bureau of Prisons Transgender Offender Manual to enable the Bureau of Prisons to designate individuals to facilities in accordance with their gender identity. In other words, what this means is direct, begin the process of figuring out how to take men who identify as women and put them into the women's prison in the federal prison system. There have been some instances of this already happening at various state prisons. What could go wrong? That's the part of our next conversation that we are going to have. The Federalist broke this, and Nathaniel Blake is the one who wrote about this, and he is forthcoming. We will have him in just one moment. And as as I mentioned, this has happened at state levels, and just as a refresher, because the states all run their own prison system, and some st- uh, some cities themselves have their own jail system, but the states have a have a prison system, and the federal government has its own prison system as well. And just like the court system, the states get to determine what happens in a state prison, and the federal government gets to determine what happens in a federal prison. So the question is, what will happen if the federal government decides in the entire federal government 
prison system that any man who claims to be a woman now can go into the women's prison. With me now to talk about it is Nathaniel Blake. He is a writer at The Federalist and also a postdoctoral fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Nathaniel, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for taking the time. I think I have described what the situation is here. Um, are there any details about this policy beyond it would just allow men to uh, self-select themselves into women's prisons by claiming to be women? We don't know for certain yet because it's simply a directive that the attorney general will do this within 30 days. However, what that would do, we know, is reverse Trump administration policy which was that the evaluation begins with biological sex. The presumption is in favor of prisoners being housed in the facilities that correspond to their biological sex. What this would do is reverse that so that now the presumption is that whatever subjective gender identity a prisoner claims is where they will be housed. And we know that the political pressure would be intense not to deny any claims, even if they seem to be extremely spurious and opportunistic. Does this rule, uh, the analysis from the department, do they suggest that there is a particular need that has arisen that justifies changing these rules? They do not in the document. It's uh, actually buried quite deeply in a draft executive order that is mostly about um, other criminal justice reforms, and they just sort of snuck it in there. We do know that there have been senators who have been pushing for this and lobbyists, and their usual argument is that uh, transgender-identified prisoners in male prisons, that is, men who identify as women, can be subject to attacks and abuse by other inmates, and that is a legitimate concern insofar as all prisoners should be protected and not subject to harm by other inmates. But the way to protect them is not to create a blanket rule that then allows men on their say-so alone to transfer to women's prisons and be put into the general population. That is simply exchanging one harm for another harm that could be much greater. We actually have some experience with that situation at state prisons, don't we? How has that gone? It has gone poorly. Uh, California has implemented a rule like this, and they are currently being sued by a feminist group that is not bought into the transgender ideology and agenda, the Women's Liberation Front, because female prisoners have been attacked and assaulted. And there were also stories circulating about how women's prisons were handing out contraceptives to female prisoners preparatory to an expected influx of men identifying as women into the prison. Washington State, likewise, has started implementing this. And there was reporting by people at National Review Online about how there have been assaults, there have been abuse, again, by prisoners who are men who identify as women who have been placed in women's prisons. And more disturbing still is that, according to this piece, there were attempts to cover this up. Records are not even being kept properly, again, presumably because political pressure is being applied by the same people who are trying to push this at the federal level, the same, same lobbying groups, the same 
interests. Nathaniel, we've got about a minute left. I know this is a draft rule that you have seen. Is there any indication of how serious the Biden administration is about this? Is this something they're just they're just discussing or that they're certain to do? I expect that they will do this. Um, the expectation of people I've corresponded with is that they are going through with this. They are planning it. And this is something that Biden had talked about on the trail. And I think people dismissed it at the time as just campaign talk. But he had said that people should be housed in prison based on gender identity, which means men will be allowed in women's prisons if they say they feel like a woman. It's a crazy story. Nathaniel Blake, thank you so much for taking the time to update us today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. A similar related story, a transgender swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania is making headlines, but this time not for smashing records, but for losing to another transgender swimmer. We'll talk about it when we come back right after the break. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Finley Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you have joined us. University of Pennsylvania senior Leah Thomas has been making headlines this swim season in the NCAA, not just for smashing records, but for doing so as a biological man on the women's team. Thomas, who was born Will Thomas, has been especially dominant in the longer races like the 1,650-yard freestyle, where he beat out the second-place U Penn swimmer by a whopping 38 seconds. 
Though the UPenn administration strongly advised the swimmers to avoid talking to the media, a couple of them have spoken out about their experiences with Thomas, who allegedly bragged about how easy the races have been and brought other swimmers to tears, reportedly. And this past weekend, Thomas made headlines again, but this time for losing to another trans athlete. Joining me now to talk about this is Mary Zock, Director of the Center for Human Dignity at Family Research Council. Mary is a graduate of the University of Notre Dame, where she played basketball for the Fighting Irish and led it on the 2010-11 National Championship runner-up team. Mary, good to see you today. Good to be here, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Well, tell us first what happened over the weekend in the swim meets. Well, it's it's a little confusing to people. Um, Leah Thomas competed in a number of events. Uh, Thomas won two of those events. Um, it appeared to people watching the events that uh, Thomas was not um, was not trying, was not giving his best, giving giving the best effort that was that was possible. Um, but then in the third event, uh, Leah Thomas came up short and, and was beaten by a biological woman um, who identifies as a man. Now, it's, it's strange. Is this, was this scripted? I know that, that Thomas got a lot of bad attention for winning an event by 38 seconds, and it really was a bad look for those trying to say, oh, there's no biological differences between men and women. This isn't going to ruin women's sports. Do we think that, you know, he's kind of throwing these these meets now to try to make a different point? You know, I don't know if if that's the case or not, but what I can tell you is that a number of my teammates from the University of Notre Dame would beat just about any guy on the street in a game of one-on-one basketball. Those girls are the best female athletes in the country, and 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 they could meet could beat your average male athlete and even even decent male athletes in a game of one-on-one. Where the difference comes in is when we have elite athletes or or any level that is comparative. And and that's the point that I want to make about the event that Leah Thomas lost in is that was not his event. As you as you said Leah Thomas has has beaten beaten other swimmers by as much as 38 seconds in the longer events. That those are the events that he competed in when he was on the men's team. And and what we saw over the weekend was him competing in an event that was not his typical event, which I think proves the fact that biological males do have an advantage over biological females. Now, let's talk about kind of the psychological, emotional component of this. You were a college athlete. What's going on for the women in these meets on the Penn team, but on other teams as well? who are competing in these meets, and realistically, they don't have a chance of success. How does that affect these women who have been training their whole lives to swim in these meets? I think it must be very frustrating. They're essentially competing for second place. But what I want to point out as well, Joseph, is I was the last player to to, to walk on to Notre Dame's women's basketball team, meaning I was the worst player on the team. If just one man had said that he was a woman, I wouldn't have made that team at all. The team that I had worked for years and years to, to make, that would have just not happened. And so, and the same is true for one athlete at the University of Pennsylvania. 
one female athlete is not on that team, is instead watching from the stands because a slot on that team was taken by a biological male. And that is wrong. Now, a recent report from the Transgender Law Center, uh, they basically admitted that none of their arguments are winning on the sports issue, that they can't figure out a way to frame this in a way that gets the public to agree with them. In the broader context of this entire debate about gender and transgenderism, do you think the sports debate is what's going to be the end of the road? Well, I certainly hope that it is. In sports, we see whenever a biological male competes on a female in a female sport or in a female arena, a woman loses. And and we see the same is true in life, right? Any any time that a biological male takes a spot that would have otherwise gone to a woman, women lose. Any time that a biological male is allowed into women's restrooms, women feel um, they they feel endangered. They they feel uncomfortable. These are things that women shouldn't have to deal with. This is this is something that we need to to stand up against because we care about women. Mary, one final question, about 30 seconds. I've heard rumors that there could be an actual boycott of the rest of the Penn women's swimming team over this situation. Any reason to think that might happen? Well, I certainly think that it should. I certainly hope that it does, because there are women on that team who have competed their whole lives. Swimmers get up at four in the morning to go to swim practice. You don't get up at four in the morning for 15 consecutive years to then come in second place to a man. Mary Zuck, thanks so much for being with us and all you do. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up, Vladimir Putin is rattling his sabers on the Ukrainian border. And the Biden administration is threatening massive consequences. Is Is Putin serious? Are we up to the task? We'll talk about it when we come back right after the break. Stay with Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. 
In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Attention university students. Are you looking for an internship that will help you grow as a Christian leader and allow you to positively influence the culture? Then Family Research Council's internship program is for you. FRC's life-changing 12- to 15-week internship program will prepare and equip you for the next step in your professional journey. You'll enjoy a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training. All of these offerings were created to aid you in your personal and professional development. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to work side-by-side with our experts in policy, communications, event planning, and more. The real-world experience you gain will prepare you to pursue a career of influence and make a difference wherever God calls you. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Remind you that the website is TonyPerkins.com, where you can watch this and every episode live or on demand at TonyPerkins.com. This week, U.S. and Russian delegations will be meeting amid rising tensions over the buildup of Russian troops on the border of Ukraine, which the Biden administration has been trying to deter with the threat of sanctions, a threat that the Kremlin has shrugged off. Yesterday, during an interview with George Stephanopoulos on ABC's This Week, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the Biden administration has offered two paths to Russian President Vladimir Putin, one through diplomacy and dialogue and the other through deterrence and massive consequences. When asked what those massive consequences are, Secretary Blinken had this to say. We've been working in uh, tremendous collaboration with uh, European partners and allies and beyond uh, to make it very clear that uh, there will be uh, massive consequences for Russia if it renews its aggression, uh, by which I mean uh, economic, financial, uh, and other consequences. Is it going to work? Well, with me now to talk about this and make sense of everything happening in Russia and Ukraine is national security and foreign policy expert James J. Carafano. Vice President of the Heritage Foundation's Catherine and Shelby Collum Davis Institute. He's also a 25-year Army veteran who has served in Europe, Korea, and the United States. James, welcome to the program. Hey, it's good to be with you. We are so glad to have you. This is an important topic uh, that I know a lot of us don't know enough about, and I'm thankful for the chance to discuss this with you. And first, to set the scene, what are the meetings taking place this week? So there's actually three sets of meetings this week. One is a direct dialogue between the United States and Russia. One is a meeting of the called the NATO-Russia Council. So that would be the United States, all the members of NATO represented, and the Russians. And the a third is a meeting of the, the OSCE. So it's, what's really interesting about these is n- none of these really feature Ukraine. 
So most of this dialogue is going back and forth without really a major diplomatic um, d- diplomatic engagement by the Ukraine. And I, I think that actually is, is part of the problem because it, it really marginalizes Ukraine because in the end, it's their land, their people that are really at risk here. And, and, and they've got the least powerful diplomatic voice uh, in the debate. Well, I believe, if memory serves, the Czech Republic once got given away at a meeting in their own country that they weren't part of either. And so maybe there's some precedent for this, unfortunately. Is the purpose of these meetings explicitly to just stop a Russian invasion of Ukraine? Well, I think it's being framed in the broader context of relations between Europe and the United States. But let's be honest, none of this would be going on right now if Russia was not actually threatening a, an invasion of Ukraine. Um, we just briefly ought to talk about what we're really talking about here. There's 44 million people in the Ukraine, 44 million people. They are united in their opposition to the Russians on this. And many of these people are act, actually ethnic Russians. If Russia invades, there will be a real war. And, and the Ukraine, Ukrainians will fight really hard. And it will be very, very bloody. And part of that could well be millions of Ukrainians forced out of their own country, which will create a massive refugee flood into Western Europe. And 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 let's not be foolish. This is not about Ukraine. This is about Putin wanting to expand his sphere of influence, destabilize NATO and drive the United States out of the transatlantic community. So regardless of what happens, this doesn't end here and it doesn't end in Ukraine. That's what's at stake. And so to your point that you made is, well, well, what are we doing? Well, so far, the administration has put on the table the threat of sanctions, which even the administration knows is is meaningless. Russia, Iran, um, look, these re- even Venezuela, these regimes are really sanctions proof in the sense that they control their economies. So they can always funny, funnel whatever money they have to support the things that they want to do. So sanctions are a, they're a punishment, but they're not a deterrent because that's already factored in by these countries ahead of time. So that's meaningless. And then what these meetings are about, what Blinken laid out there is, is their goal is to essentially uh, de-escalate the situation. Well, well, that makes no sense because de-escalation sounds like both sides need to cool off and back down. This this isn't about this is about Putin threatening war. He created the escalation, therefore he has no motivation to de-escalate unless he gets concessions. So so it's very, very difficult to see how the administration has postured itself for successfully pushing back against the Russians when they've literally put nothing on the table so far that the Russians really worry about. James to try to understand a bit of where Putin's coming from, why Ukraine? Why not Lithuania? Why not Estonia? Why not Georgia? What's the history there that makes him particularly interested in Ukraine? Well, well, that's a great question. So Putin right now, we so there are two different kinds of, of states on Putin's border. One are the, the former Warsaw Pact countries, right? So these were countries which essentially were controlled by by Moscow during the Soviet era, Poland, uh, the Czech Republic, which is part of Czechoslovakia, uh, Romania. So, so they were countries that 
that Russia occupied after World War II, and they stayed by essentially putting in puppet governments, which were answerable to the Soviet Union, and then putting together the Warsaw Pact, which was much about having a military to control those countries as it was about threatening NATO. The, the other is what's called former Soviet states. These were independent nations that under the, the communists were formally annexed to become part of Russia. Uh, and that includes the Ukraine. So why the Ukraine is important and these other countries is they each have a significant Russian ethnic minority, Russians that essentially moved there during the, the Soviet era. And they represent um, a really kind of a, a, a foothold into Western Europe in which the Russians have enormous influence. So we, we talk about Ukraine, but there's actually three countries, Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia. What do they all have in common? They were all former Soviet countries, which declared their independence after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They all have significant Russian ethnic minorities. They all border Russia. And every one of them has been partially invaded and occupied by, by the Russians. So we have Crimea and the Donbass in Ukraine. Um, we have uh, Transnistria in Georgia. And we have a portion of Moldova, which is Abkhazia, which, and, uh, which is also controlled by the Russians. And, so James- and the reason why Putin does this is because this essentially is a launching pad to, because all of these countries would prefer to be with the West. They'd all prefer to be part of the EU. Georgia and Ukraine would, would be part of NATO tomorrow if we would have them. So Putin uses his pressure on them as a way to threaten the West. And since they all strategically border very important countries, I mean, Ukraine pushes right into the border of NATO, the the former Soviet country, the former Warsaw Pact countries, which now fear Putin, Poland, Romania, they they see this as a real threat. So it's it's like if you had an angry sore on your arm and every time you wanted to cause pain, you had somebody punch that thing. That's what Putin has in the Ukraine and Moldova and Georgia. So would it be fair to say that Ukraine is the biggest domino? And would you expect if they went into Ukraine, they would quickly go to Moldova, quickly go to Georgia? Well, Ukraine is the most important of the three because it is the closest to Europe. It's the closest uh, to trying to join the European Union, um, to try to join NATO. uh, And it strategically sits along the Black Sea, which is incredibly valuable uh, in terms of the Russians, if you want to actually have military control of the Black Sea, then controlling Ukraine is tremendously valuable. And, and not to mention, Ukraine has a number of resources and strategic advantages, including a, a, a tremendous capacity to produce food. So it is it is the most valuable one. But every one of these uh, strengthens Putin's control over his sphere of influence and allows him to put additional pressure on the countries in the border. And eventually what he's looking for is, you know, we all know Ukraine's not part of NATO. And so therefore you cannot invoke Article 5, which is the common defense of, of the NATO community. But Putin, with every advance, 
It allows him to put pressure. And what eventually wants to do is to create a situation where he does something and it's a violation of Article 5 and NATO does nothing. Because what that will do is really precipitate, he believes, the collapse of NATO and the withdrawal of the United States from Europe. And then a Europe not backed by the United States, to him, is just a bunch of squabbling countries where he can exert his control. And that really provides the ultimate security for Russia. And as much as we talk about the Russians aligning with the Chinese, the Russians don't really want to be a, a suburb of Moscow. They want to be an independent power. And if they can have predominant influence over Western Europe and also access to the Middle East, in their terms, they'll, they'll, be, they'll punch of equal weight with the Chinese. And this will be the restoration of, of, uh, of a, the greater Russia, which, uh, which Putin has always desired. So what has deterred him to this point? Because these, this situation has been the way it is for quite some time. What has deterred Putin from trying to take over? And there's been skirmishes on the border, I know, but taking a more aggressive action to try to take Ukraine up until now. And can that situation be maintained in the future? Yeah, well, the answer to that question is actually really easy. It, it was Donald Trump. Um, look, the first big bite of the Ukraine happened under Obama. When, when Trump came into office, um, the Russians really worried about him. Uh, there were a number of, there's a very famous incident happened in Syria where some Russian mercenaries, uh, attacked a U.S. base and Trump basically ordered an airstrike and wiped them off the face of the earth. And, and the Russians got the message. So the, the Russians actually worried that pushing too hard with Trump in office could provoke a serious reaction. And so they sat back. And then I think two things really happened. One was Afghanistan. I think in Afghanistan, they really saw how bad Biden reacted under crisis. And, and, and it was bad. And not only did he not have a good plan, but he really spent the entire crisis running around trying to make excuses how it wasn't his fault and not dealing with the crisis. So I think they saw a weak leader. And then they looked around Biden and, and what they saw, all the same Obama people that they that they exploited for eight years. So I, I think they moved forward on this next step with a lot of confidence. So there's a, there's a, there's a really simple reason why they attacked Ukraine under Obama and that for four years, they didn't dare. And then when Biden came on back in office and they got exactly got the measure of the man, they they just picked up where they left off. I think it's completely predictable. One of the recommendations that you've made in handling this situation is Congress taking action on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Why is a pipeline important in this conversation? So this is a pipeline between Russia and Germany. And there, there's two things. One is, of course, uh, if it's an operation, Russia will make a ton of money of it. And, and they use that money to threaten other countries, like what they're doing in the Ukraine. I mean, putting 100,000 people on Ukraine's border is expensive. How can the Russians afford that? They have an economy that's the size of Texas. And the answer is because they make a ton of money off of selling energy, and they use that money to threaten their neighbors. But the other thing is, is, is if, if Russians have a pipeline that goes to Germany, they essentially can bypass the pipeline that goes through the Ukraine. And, and, and what that really means is they can cut off energy supplies to some European countries and not others. 
And so they can really use that as a tool to threaten countries. So we've already seen, for example, the Italians came online and they said, you know, Biden says we're going to have to do sanctions if if they attack the Ukraine. Well, does that include cutting off buying gas from Russia? Because I got to tell you, in the middle of the winter, we can't do that. Mm-hmm. So uh, Nord Stream 2 would allow a, additional power of Putin to really manage European energy markets. So there are a lot of European initiatives that look about moving gas other ways and other forces of energy, but the Russian gas would undercut all of those and all those projects would die on the vine. And that would just mean Europe is more dependent on Russia. And that means more energy blackmail. That's why many people think that the very first thing we should do, if we want to show the Russians we're serious, is to not let, is to not have that pipeline open. Of course, the pipeline's owned by the Germans and the Russians, but the U.S. can sanction people that use or, or operate that pipeline, and that can be quite effective. You know, it's funny, the, the Biden administration has been completely feckless on this thing, because when they came in office, they said, well, the pipeline's almost completed. We can't really do anything. But look, a pipeline that's not 100% constructed and not 100% working is 100% useless because it's not doing anything. So that was a lie. Uh, and, and now they've turned around and said, well, you know, we'll threaten this. But when this law was proposed in Congress, the, the administration actually opposes a law which would allow us to put sanctions on Nord Stream 2. So I'm not really sure the administration takes that seriously. But James, but, but the frustrating point is we're yeah. not going to get Russia to back down unless we Unless they know James, we are we are out of time. Sadly, I knew we were going to go along on this, but we really appreciate you being with us. We're going to have to do this again because there's so much more to get to. But thanks for being with us today very much. Hey, thanks for having me. Friends, that's the program. That's what we got for today. We'll see you next time here on Washington Watch. Remember, fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.